Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, October the 23rd, 2022. We live in strange times, and strange times require perhaps strange people to, to decipher those odd times. A few months ago, we did a great show with Max Chafkin, uh, an authority on the Silicon Valley investor and conservative visionary, pioneer, troublemaker, uh, Peter Thiel. Uh, he has a new book out, or he had a new book out, The Contrarian. I've always found Thiel particularly interesting in his attempt to make sense of reality. Of course, he's one of the founders of Palantir, uh, a surveillance technology. But of course, the word Palantir was invented by J.R.R. R. Tolkien. You can find it in Lord of the Rings. And certainly uh, the romantic visionaries of Silicon Valley, like Teal, have been very inspired by uh, Tolkien and his Lord of the Rings. Lots of pieces about why Silicon Valley is obsessed with the Lord of the Rings. One of Tolkien's, uh, according to Wikipedia, at least, epic high fantasy novels. Um, Tolkien, of course, is also the author of The Hobbit, which goes along with um, Lord of the Rings as a great children's classic written in 1937. Um, and my guest today has written a book about Tolkien's Hobbit. Uh, he's a literary theorist and the subtitle of the book is realizing history through fantasy a, a critical companion uh robert t talley teaches in texas and he's joining us from his campus near austin uh rob you're a man on the left um how do you square your interest in tolkien and seems like your sympathy with tolkien with men like um uh, Peter Thiel. Is there a big difference ideologically, if that's the right word, between Tolkien's Hobbit and Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, or are they, do they all reflect the same worldview? Uh, well, the, the Hobbit is um, one of the one of the sort of fascinating things that that I do talk about in this book is that the Hobbit was quite accidental. Um, Tolkien was really steeped in his own lore of what would become the Silmarillion, which he never published during his lifetime. And he mentions that The Hobbit, both the book and the character, sort of literally intruded into that history that he would prefer to have worked on. But because The Hobbit was completed and published and so successful, and thus uh, his publisher demanded a sequel that then became Lord of the Rings 17 years later, um, it took him a long time to write that, you know, it, it, it made for a sort of strange situation where the Hobbit is kind of an outlier within his lore, while also being absolutely essential to it. And with Lord of the Rings being what it became, the Hobbit retrospectively became a prequel. But of course, there was never going to be a Lord of the Rings unless there had been a demand for a sequel to the Hobbit. And so yeah, it sounds like you're a, you're an executive director in Hollywood talking about sequels and prequels <laughs> and all the rest of it. So are you suggesting that The Hobbit is the key book in in, in Tolkien's output? 
in a, in a way it is, and, and, and I say surprisingly because the Lord of the Rings is so much deeper and richer and, of course, at least six or seven times longer. Um, uh, in that sense, it doesn't seem like, you know, uh, Rocky II to The Hobbit's Rocky, right? It's not a sequel in that sense. But, um, but it's true that none of that would have been written un unless The Hobbit had been published. And The Hobbit sort of forced him to, now that it's in print and no longer just in his own notes and drafts, uh, deal with the world that uh, has now been published. And, and well, tell me about this guy, uh, Tolkien. I have to admit, I mean, I grew up in England, it's no secret. <laughs> I, 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 I'm always amazed with the, the cult of Tolkien. Yeah. To grow and grow and grow. When I was growing up, I didn't know anyone who read either The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings. Maybe it wasn't the kind of thing we progressives read in the 1970s. W what is it about this man that makes him so attractive to both leftist literary scholars like yourself and right-wing hooligans like Peter Thiel? <laughs> well, maybe I should first just mention that part of what I was doing when I got interested in at least writing about Tolkien, as opposed to just reading him when I was a kid, uh, was in a way to reclaim him for the left. Not that right himself is a leftist. I hasten to add, I'm not saying that, but I'm thinking of it almost more in the way that there is a tradition within Marxist literary criticism. I would go back to Marx himself, who claimed that his favorite novelist was Balzac, who was, of course, a conservative bourgeois monarchist. Well, that's a longer running conversation, Rob. It I is. Mean, uh, I'm just Balzac saying was also a Marxist <laughs> before Marx in his class analysis and his analysis of capitalism. Quite, quite so, yeah. Quite, and he quite certainly so. wasn't a children's novelist or a fantasist. He was the ultimate realist. No, no, I, absolutely. Um, that That's true. And I don't mean to say that uh, exactly that Tolkien is, is like Balzac, only that one can certainly uh, be a leftist and still read a right-wing author. Yeah, no, I take that. value I mean, in his work. And you've I, written, I, I, I've been digging around, you've written some papers, which no doubt you gave at literary conferences, Realizing History, Tolkien and the Desire Called Mark. So there's a lot of <laughs> right. sophisticated little literary theory here. I know you're quite influenced by Frederick Jameson, a, a very uh, influential uh, yeah. uh, Mar also my, Marxist my literary theorist. Yeah, I, Fred, uh, Fred was my teacher when I was an undergraduate. He introduced me to a lot of, I guess, my, my first encounters with dialectical theory or Marxist theory sort of came at that time, I suppose. So, um, so uh, this is a fascinating conversation, Rob. Yeah. Uh, how, how, where's the Marx in Tolkien? What, where, what's your <laughs> argument? Well, my argument, uh, and I, I hasten to add, you know, it is somewhat perverse. I'm not sure how many Tolkien fans were. Uh, I hope it's perverse, people. Rob. I only have perverse people on my show. It better be perverse. <laughs> Well, quite so. I mean, I, I guess it's a kind of um, reading against the grain, certainly of Tolkien's own personal views. He was, uh, as you know, quite conservative. Uh, you know, there, there's a, a recent book out um, by an Australian historian called Tolkien Race and Racism in Middle Earth. I, I've just published a somewhat mixed review of it. Mm. But that um, author sort of studies Tolkien's actual racism and the racism mm. uh, around him and, and his time. That's hardly, and, that, that, that book must be, in, if anything's inevitable, that book was inevitable. 
Yeah, exactly. And of course, timely given, like you say, Peter Thiel, uh, the new prime minister of, of Italy, is also a, a Tolkien nut, apparently. Oh, is she? Yeah. I think she's quite <laughs> an interesting character, actually. Yeah, I, mean, I read I, about I that in it, the Guardian. In an odd way, uh, Marx might have rather admired her. But anyway, that's another story. <laughs> But um, yeah, I, I think that part of it is my uh, uh, perverse, as I say, reading of Tolkien. Um, the first thing I ever published on Tolkien was actually an article called Let Us Now Praise Famous Orcs, uh, published in the mm -hmm. Tolkien Journal Myth Lore in 2010. And uh, obviously my sympathy for orcs may have something to do with my reading of this. But I also note in that article and ever since I've talked about orcs that Tolkien himself provides those scenes uh, in Lord of the Rings where orcs are talking amongst themselves. And what yes, these, um, so, yeah, apologies, Rob, for keep on jumping in here. Sure. What 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 were Tolkien's um, personal politics? Of course, uh, nineteen thirty-seven. He writes mm. this book. Um, he, I, I'm not someone particularly interested in Tolkien, but even I know that a lot of this book is interpreted as a as a defense, a critique against fascism. What, but what were oh. Tolkien's politics? Were they sort of Middle England, using his, you know, Middle Earth, Middle England conservatism? I, I think that's a fair way to characterize it. I mean, Tolkien was um, uh, certainly conservative. He, he was definitely anti-fascist um, in, in a sense. I would uh, again, I'm, I'm not sure. I add in a sense because, as you know, in the 30s, there was so much even mainstream English and American support for things like Franco and fascism in Spain and whatnot, um, that it's hard to say, you know, to, to, to limit it to Mussolini and Hitler. But um, I think Tolkien's, he was also Roman Catholic and, of course, a, a very Protestant country, and I, he took that part of his background uh, uh, very seriously. Uh, this uh, The reason I mentioned this Tolkien race book that came out, Robert Stewart's uh, new book, is that he basically makes the argument that Tolkien was almost too conservative to be fascist because he had a more old-fashioned racism, and, and if anything, fascism was too demotic, too much of a mass movement, and he didn't like the masses. Uh, that's an odd thing to say, defending Tolkien's racism on the grounds that he was more racist. But... I, uh, <laughs> from my understanding of, and, and I have to admit, I probably should admit this publicly, that I have never read either Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. I've heard it being narrated to my children endlessly, and I've been to all sorts <laughs> of movies about it. And my kids, like all kids these days, gr grown up obsessed with it, so we've seen sure. all the Hobbit movies. M my understanding is that this is a book idealizing Middle England, the, the, the rural nature of... Um, Middle England, and of course, epitomized by the character of Bilbo Baggins and the geography of, of the Shire. Is that right? It, it is, although, of course, we, we see very little of the Shire in The Hobbit because after the first chapter, he leaves and goes on his journey into the wide world, as, as, as it's called. Um, but yeah, Bilbo uh, is an anachronism, and his anachronism is, is a big part of the book and, and of my argument about it with respect to realizing history through fantasy. Bilbo um, is uh, basically a kind of late Victorian or Edwardian bourgeois uh, of the rentier class, we might say. He doesn't work. He's got inherited wealth, although he doesn't seem to be particularly rich. He is, we're told, well-to-do. 
Um, Sorry, so you said realizing history. So he's an example of realizing history through through fantasy. I mean, fantasy, it's, uh, fantasy yeah. the genre uh, of fantasy. But the, so the he's like, an example. So Bilbo is an example. Of a lot of these kids in America today who grow up reading fantasy and um, don't have to work. We're, we're returning to the <laughs> aristocratic architecture of, of late 19th, early 20th century Europe. Yeah, yeah. And of course, uh, he becomes a kind of fictional intermediary for us, us, the reader in 1937, at least, um, uh, and perhaps today, who then links a sort of relatively familiar, uh, like you say, West Midlands uh, kind of uh, English uh, country gentleman uh, with this much more mythic and fantastic world uh, that involves, you know, Thorin, the king under the mountain, uh, legendary dwarven leader, obviously Gandalf the wizard, and then all of the things that Bilbo discovers along the way. Uh, the Hobbit, uh, much more so than Lord of the Rings, is quite episodic, where each chapter is its own mini-adventure. But for the most part, uh, until they get to their destination, the mountain that has the dragon in it, each chapter is also a new culture. They, or, or a new uh, creature, you might say, or a race. Uh, chapter two, they meet trolls for the first time, and that's an adventure. Then chapter three, they meet uh, elves. Then chapter Did four, they meet Did he invent the term troll? Um, is Pardon? That, is, is Tolkien the inventor of the word troll? Oh, no, no. Um, troll uh, goes back um, to uh, the sort of sources that he was interested in himself. As I understand it, it was a widely understood part of sort of Norse mythology mm -hmm. uh, and sort of uh, what I guess we think of as medieval Nordic cultures. Um, but so yeah, the, I think um, trolls like like gnomes and elves and whatnot are, are part of that Northern European mythology. Right, so was he very, according to Wikipedia at least, Tolkien based Bilbo on the designer William Morris's travels in Ireland, uh, in, sorry, not in Ireland, in Iceland. So. Yeah, borrowing from the Icelandic mythology of elves, is that correct? Yeah, I, and especially Tolkien's elves, I think, come from a kind of Icelandic mythology, including the the language he invents for them. Is uh, I'm no linguist, of course, but I, as I understand it, he he draws heavily upon uh, Icelandic, and also occasionally uh, Welsh and and other languages. Tolkien, of course, him, himself was a philologist by training and had a strong background in language in addition to what you'd expect of uh, educated people from his generation, you know, Latin and Greek and German and French. Uh, 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 you Rob, know. you're a literary theorist, so you give a lot of thought to this. I mean, was Tolkien writing a children's book for grown-ups? Was he intentionally writing The Hobbit as this symbolic defense of contemporary reality and idealization um, of the middle shire and of a way of life that is getting lost or was he really just writing for kids no the the hobbit was really just writing for kids and and in fact um he later lamented this is why lord of the rings is so different in tone and style as well as complexity and depth and length is that uh the hobbit started out as just a story he was telling his own children and so if you read the, the language, I have a chapter kind of on style, the, the, including the, the voice. The, the narrator is very much sort of an avuncular 
uh, voice that even makes little asides like, you know, you may think this, or, you know, we don't see hobbits around as much these days. And it's, it's very much like, you know, perhaps your father or your uncle reading you a story before bedtime. But he later regretted that because he felt that uh, he, he called it a silliness of manner that even children know better than. And what he took great pride in when the Lord of the Rings proved as successful as it was in the 50s was that he, he had claimed uh, to many skeptics, of course, that there was an audience of adults who loved fairy stories, as he called them, and who loved mm -hmm. this mythology. And that if, if, if you'd only publish this work, you'd find out that it's not just for kids. Speaking um, of fairy stories, uh, Rob, we're always looking for sexual elements here. Of course, the uh, Alice, uh, Alice stories of the 19th century, another famous English fairy tale, mm. have been overanalyzed from the author's point of view in terms of his sexuality. Is there a sexual element here or was... Uh, was uh, was Tolkien happily married with two with kids and just you know yeah it's sex into it. It's funny you mentioned that. There's sort of a, a an article back I think from the '60s or early '70s that you know was a play on the "No sex, please, we're English," but "No sex, please, we're hobbits." And it, it's interesting. Uh, Tolkien himself was a family man. Uh, his love affair with his uh, wife, who, uh, you know, he married during World War II and then had uh, four kids with. And, you know, he was a, absolutely a, a devoted husband and father. But it's interesting that his heroes, both Bilbo and Frodo, are bachelors, confirmed bachelors their whole lives. They never have a romance to speak of. Yeah. And it's almost like I imagine, you know, perhaps a kind of... Uh, unconscious uh, drive among family men to sort of uh, admire the bachelor life perhaps of just someone who can read and smoke pipes and drink ale with your friends at the pub. And that's more or less all you have to worry about. Um, I'm really curious. Um, I, uh, I don't suppose you know the answer to this, but did Orwell read uh, Tolkien? Because there's a there's an Orwellian element to this idealization of old England. And Orwell, of course, is a man of the left. Mm. Um, is there a connection between Tolkien and Orwell? Do you know if they ever interacted or Orwell read The Hobbit and commented on it? You know, I, I, I honestly don't know that. Um, and shoot, I, I probably should. I'm sure someone must have studied uh, that connection. One of, one of the things I think that is being overcome now in, in scholarship as well as I suppose in fandom that, that maybe reflects the, my, my ignorance of this is that uh, there was for a time a real divide between fantasy and sci-fi, which mm. as you know, or as you can imagine is probably also very much a political divide. Uh, I, we mentioned earlier my old professor, uh, Frederick Jameson, who is a major, among other things, major scholar of science fiction wrote mm. a very good, uh, very important book, 2005 Archaeologies of the Future on utopia and science fiction. That book has a chapter called The Great Divide, where he, yeah. where he basically shows how fantasy is not doing what science fiction and utopia yeah, I mean, are doing. Wikipedia describes your, your, your old teacher, Jameson, as a Marxist political theorist. Is that... Just the distraction. Would is he? Do you describe? Are you a Marxist? I mean, you've you've written I mean, about Marx and Tolkien and the desire called Marx, whatever that means. Um, 
Is yeah, Marx I mean, I, helpful here too? Well, I, I would, I, you know, Marxist, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I don't want to, you know, open that ke kettle of fish, I suppose, about sort of uh, actually existing Marxism versus Marxist theory. Yeah, I mean, Marxist theory, I'm not suggesting that, uh, you know, he's a right. Stalinist or a Leninist, but I, I'm curious, uh, I'm not sure how much uh, fantasy Marx read to his kids back in the 19th century. <laughs> well, what, what is the connection to Marx of, of, you know, what's your argument about realizing oh. history, Tolkien and Marx? Well, my, my argument, again, which is, uh, as I say, somewhat perverse, is that, you know, part of the uh, desire, I suppose, of, of a certain kind of Marxist criticism is to locate beneath the ideological veneer uh, uh, of things the true historical content. And, of course, that content can be evidence of class struggle. Uh, it can just be the notion that what is taken to be natural is actually historical. And uh, so for me, uh, my reading of Tolkien is that The Hobbit comes off as being something like a historical novel, um, as that term is understood by the uh, great Hungarian Marxist uh, critic Georg Lukács, who wrote the book in 1935, I think, um, The Historical Novel. Uh, using Sir Walter Scott as sort of the founder of that uh, modern genre. But, um, uh, you know, uh, with Bilbo, we discover this deep, rich history that he did not realize he took for granted or didn't realize is, is really an active part of his world. Um, and so he realizes history, even though the history in question, of course, is not real. It's, it's uh, the his history of Middle Earth. Um, Thorin Oakenshield and those people aren't real historical personages, but he he uh, opens up to a, a historical awareness that I think is somewhat like the um, uh, dawning of a kind of class consciousness or something like that, which is not to say, of course, again, Bilbo is on the side of the revolutionary proletariat or anything like that, only that we, we find in uh, his adventures a sort of a uh, presence of the historical as well as the, you know, I say geopolitical, um, uh, the various races and classes and nations and their relation to one another. At the, at the very end of the book, for example, and I quote this line as the chapter of my conclusion, uh, chapter title for my conclusion, there's a moment where uh, a year after the adventure has happened, Bilbo is entertaining Gandalf and he learns that, um, you know, the prophecy as the people of Lake Town had imagined seems to have come true after a fashion because they're doing so well now. And he said, oh, so the, the prophecies came true. And, and Gandalf said, why shouldn't they come true just because you had a part to play in it? And he says, you know, uh, you are quite a little fellow in the wide world. Uh, and I, that's what I quote as the title, but the notion is quite a little fellow in the wide world still can contribute to the making of history, although it may be. Yeah, uh, my, my sense, Rob, is that, that that kind of stuff about the little fellow making history, sure. self-realization, would appeal much more to a libertarian like Peter Thiel than to a, a Marxist literary scholar like yourself. Yeah, definitely. And and again, that's why I say I have to read against the grain. He's probably reading very much with the grain and not only with the grain, but with a grain of uh, self-congratulatory literalism that probably makes him feel uh, 
smug and superior. Right. In Whereas way that you're reading with a grain of salt. Uh, uh, Marx famously <laughs> said, of course, we make our own history, but not quite in the way we think we do. I wonder yeah. whether the elf stuff also has a bite in its tail, so to speak. Um, we did a show recently with Nancy Marie Brown um, on Iceland's elves. She's reinvestigating this. She's a really interesting writer. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work. Uh, she has a new book out, Looking for the Hidden Folk, How Iceland's Elves Can Save the Earth. And it's an analysis of the way in which Iceland's culture, historically and today, have used elvish mythology to protect the environment. Now, of course, Tolkien was writing before global warming. Sure. But I wonder if there is an, potentially an environmental angle to The Hobbit, which puts Tolkien on the left rather than the right, takes, takes it away from, from libertarians like Teal. Yeah, well, for one thing, Tolkien was, of course, and this is where he would uh, part ways with Teal pretty vehemently, was very uh, anti-technology. <laughs> And yeah. not just anti-industrialization in terms of coal smoke and the sort of hellish uh, scenes uh, that that you know are depicted in 19th century or urban exposés uh, about uh, industrial towns of Manchester or Pittsburgh, you know, here in the U.S. But um, uh, yeah, I think he was very, you know, uh, I'm not sure he would necessarily embrace the green movement, but he certainly was very much a uh, a believer in in uh, kind of nature and of leaving these sorts of things alone, uh, you know. He he actually talks about mourning for a tree, and he does uh, sort of invent the creature that is the int, the shepherds of the trees who protect the forests in Lord of the Rings. Um, I think the the use of elves in that sort of Icelandic sense uh, as as uh, embodiments of a kind of natural. Uh, uh, a, a relationship between the human and the natural world that could be cultivated is sort of an elfish human way as opposed to mankind as the user of nature and the manipulator of nature um, in terms of machinery or technology. I, I, I can definitely see that. I've noticed also that there are people now today talking about even trolls and goblins along those lines. Um, uh, goblins as seen as sort of natural creatures of the forest and and in that sense maybe there's a way to um uh, help me bring orcs back into the fold as people we should have more respect for um who are the bad guys in the hobbit who, who wh how does he how does he present evil well and you know this is something that is and it probably goes to tolkien's own um religious beliefs but for one thing and this is where he even he in some of his letters expressed uh, some trouble with the way he had presented works um was that you know that they exist means that they are part of god's world and therefore have some you know reason of to be here he often even shows that the so-called you know truly evil and he doesn't uh, hesitate to use the word evil often comes from good intentions. Even Sauron, the great Satan of uh, Lord of the Rings, he says initially came to Middle-earth to help heal its hurts and to, um, you know, take control over it, but as a way that uh, to take care of it. He says in one letter that, Tolk, that Sauron even 
had the economic interests of the people of, of Middle Earth in mind. And he uses the word economic in parentheses, but I think that means as distinct from spiritual and moral. And in that sense, the danger is having so much power over others that you impose your will uh, to the point that you become a tyrant, even if you had good intentions all along. Now, the problem I have with that is that orcs, or as they're called in The Hobbit, goblins, are just, you know, killed by the good guys with no remorse at all. In fact, Gandalf chuckles when he thinks about how he set a bunch of them on fire. <laughs> and it, it's incredibly cruel. And we see in Lord of the Rings, for example, that the men who fight for the bad guys uh, are often uh, well-treated, you know, G Geneva Convention or whatever you want to imagine. They are, you know, forgiven and released so long as they swear they won't take up arms against you again. But that never is given as an option for the orcs. The orcs are, are all killed. You, uh, uh, Rob, you present two kinds of literature. There's, of course, Tolkien and his fantasy. And then you also mentioned Balzac, the ultimate social <laughs> realist. Are you concerned with the way in which everybody these days seem to be uh, reading children's fantasy. Uh, I did a show last week with the best-selling writer Veronica Roth. She has a new book out, Poster Girl. She's enormously popular. Many people know her through her mm -hmm. Divergent series. And Poster Girl, there was a really interesting review on uh, Kirkus of Poster Girl. They say, a wonderfully complex and nuanced book, perfect for readers who grew up on dystopian YA, young, uh, young, young, uh, young literature. Is everyone now growing up on dystopian YA, Robin? And, it, and what are the politics of that? What are the po yeah. political consequences and causes? Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't know if you would have come across this, but uh, uh, Alan Moore, the the great comics writer who. Um, made a name for himself uh, in, in his world back in the 80s with uh, V for Vendetta and for uh, the Watchmen and whatnot. But he has complained pretty vociferously about the way the sort of comic book world and the industry around it has uh, not only been you know bad for uh, leftist politics, but uh, has actually supported right-wing politics. Yeah, it seems and, as if leftist politics has degenerated into fantasy literature, particularly negative dystopian fantasy literature. So this whole generation is growing up imagining the world in apocalyptic terms. It's kind of the reverse of Tolkien, yeah. because Tolkien is anything but an apocalyptic thinker, even though if he was writing in 1937 at a time where it was actually rather easy to, to think in apocalyptic terms. Yeah, it's true. And I, I, you know, what worries me most about the sort of absolute dominance of fantasy, and you're right, dystopian fantasy uh, aimed at young adult readers or teenagers or, or tweens, um, is uh, partly the industry itself. I mean, for one thing, you know, uh, one corporation, Walt Disney now controls Star Wars and the Marvel in, uh, 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 intellectual property. The Simpsons, even uh, which I, I love, <laughs> but you know the Walt Disney Corporation and and a few others are basically controlling popular culture now in a way that, uh, even given their past dominance, was was uh, nothing like it is today. So I mean I, I am concerned about it in in the sort of real world very very much, and also 
um, in, in the world of Tolkien, this has been plaguing Tolkien studies uh, as an academic field, but fandom as well, very viciously, you know, alt-right or neo-Nazi or white supremacist stuff. Uh, you undoubtedly heard, you know, of course, the controversies over the Amazon television show based on Tolkien with people mad that there are persons of color playing elves and things like that. Um, th there is a, a, a very frightening kind of far right, um, uh, you know, fandom in Tolkien studies that is uh, uh, resistant to not not just right. you know, leftists. We started, we, we started with Peter Thiel. I mean, I'm not sure what his racial right. politics are, but I'm guessing he's not particularly keen on people of other skin. He doesn't seem to be keen on anyone. No, and to go to what you're saying, other skins. Yeah, and to go to what you were saying about dystopia, I mean, I think there is an, a, a way in which dystopian fiction is closer to fantasy. Uh, Jameson at least makes that distinction where he says, you know, dystopia is nothing like utopia. It's it's uh, dystopia is more like fantasy, and he means fantasy in a bad way, but a, a bad way is oversimplifying it. But just to say that it it doesn't have the same utopian possibilities where he. I mean, you teach in a university, so you. You're on the front line with a lot of 20, 21 year old kids, 18 year old kids. Are they coming to your literature classes? Very familiar with Tolkien, with The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, particularly in, in movie form. But I, I'm assuming they don't know a lot of Balzac. No, it, it's funny you ask. I'm teaching Tolkien this semester right now. And I have a, a handful of people who are Tolkien nerds and who have already read it and who've you know read even some of the uh, Silmarillion stuff. Um, and I have, of course, a handful of people who've seen the Peter Jackson movies, mm. uh, but haven't read it. But I was surprised to find this semester that um, I'd say at least half the class said they had never read it or seen the movies. And I wonder, uh, finally, Rob, I mean, it's a really interesting conversation, and I apologize for some of my dumb questions. But no. uh, I've been thinking about this, and I'm not able always to articulate it in perhaps the way I should. But given the appearance of the metaverse and this alternative reality that Mark Zuckerberg is pouring billions of dollars in. Some people believe that's the future of our world. I mean, there's a, there's a strong Tolkienist quality to virtual reality, to the metaverse. How, how does that get explained by a quote unquote Marxist literary theorist like you when reality itself or virtual reality catches up to literature? That's that's a really good question, and I, and I would say that you know there there are those of course uh, in uh, media studies uh, and in uh, sort of more more technologically oriented um, who uh, have written about that and know about it far more than I do. But I do think that um, yeah, the kind of approach we have to uh, literature actually nineteenth century was my period. I wrote my dissertation on Moby Dick. <laughs> mm. um, uh, and which is, is that fantasy, or I mean, what what is that? Is that social realism, well, fancy, or a bit of both? Moby Dick, oh, Moby Dick, of course, is unclassifiable, but obviously, right. yeah, very much romanticism mixed with some kind of realism. Like everything that happens in the book technically could happen, so in that sense, it's realistic, but it's awfully, you know, uh, romantic in the sense of a kind of failed mock epic adventure story of you know saint george fights the dragon and 
dragon winds, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's, it's a, you know, a remarkable ensemble of different kinds of literary things going on. But, uh, you know, I wonder if part of that in the 19th century, as you see, you know, growing industrialization, uh, growing urbanization and whatnot, what you have is a bunch of writers, Balzac being, of course, most famous for this, trying to make sense of the, the the new reality of modern sort of and uh, social relations, um, you could argue that we, uh, you know, are in such a transitional time ourselves and that maybe the artists and, and uh, less so the critics uh, of our time will have to kind of make sense of the way uh, our reality is, is uh, challenging uh, older models of realism. 